0: Hey, how you guys doing? I'm doing okay. I have been kind of off camera a lot, doing quite a bit of reading and refreshing my thought patterns and thought centers by just delving into different forms of writing. And a writer that I stumbled across this week was Brittany King. And I reached out to her and I invited her on. What brought my attention to her was that an article was shared where she talks about her experience watching the congressional hearing about reparations, which feature ta Coates and Coleman Hughes, and how when she saw that the first time, she had a very negative reaction to Coleman Hughes. And then she recently watched that again, and she realized that she herself had changed in the way that she was perceiving what Coleman Hughes was saying. And that kind of sent her on a, or that was a part of her journey of kind of becoming more aware of the thoughts and the thinking and the opinions that she's inherited, and that appended to her identity as a black woman, and then the challenge to be an independent thinker and to process things in her own way. And so I reached out to her and I had her on and we explore the black identity and the expectations that come with that identity and the various different conversations that are happening right now in America about the black experience and the white experience in America. This is a great conversation and very expansive for me. And I really hope that participating in discussions like this and then publishing them allows us as human beings to see each other as human beings rather than just markers of these identities and these historical forces, but really communicate with each other across the differences, which is something that I nominally was to learn at the Evergreen State College. And I hopefully am fulfilling one of those foci. So without further ado, here is Brittany King. Oh, and all of her articles are linked down in the description. Make sure to check them out. Here you go. In
1: 2016, I founded a Black Lives Matter um, chapter in Clemson, Indiana. And it lasted for two years, and I, it only ended because I got into NYU. So that's why it ended. During that time, I was having conflicting thoughts about what liberation was going to look like for Black people. And I was realizing that a lot of Black voices were being shunned because they didn't fit what the popular Black voice or narrative was. And that I felt there was a lot to gain by listening to those voices. Um, But then again, those voices challenged a part of myself that I didn't want to really hear them out, if that makes sense. That's when I realized that a lot of my, my thoughts and ideas are attached to my identity as a Black person. And that started my journey with critical thinking that when you critically think you need to like kind of detach your identity away from your ideas to give room to like interrogate yourself to like see what the truth actually is because all because I'm black doesn't mean this thing is the way I see it because I'm black. Like I have to look at it objectively. So when I went to NYU and I was doing criticism was part of my well was basically my you know uh master's degree study program i had to really read people that i normally would not have read before in my life listening to this person whether white or black especially when it came to issues with race i was very like no like i'm a black activist i'm Mm -hmm. for this i'm from x i'm for this, this this but I'm not here for Shelby still. I'm not here for like John McWhorter or whatever. But after I started writing and it was till the third semester, it it was a journey, but I realized a lot of the ways I was thinking was wrong. And that by me only centering certain black voices and not considering every voice that's black, even if it, completely is an antithesis of what I think is a form of anti-Blackness. For me to police what Black is, that's not, my, that's not my business. I can't tell a Black person, you're not Black because you don't sound the way I think Black people should sound. And that we should, if we don't want to be seen as a monolith, which we don't, then we need to invite all types of diverse thought into the diaspora of black. And not just hone in on two ideas to yeah. represent sixty million people.
0: the The conversations that happen uh, with regards to race in America. I was thinking about that while engaging with your piece when you bring up black conservatism and black radicalism. And then I was thinking, well, then there's this there's the abolition movement from white people working. To you know, free the slaves or end slavery, and then civil rights movement was another flashpoint where the white population and the black population started to work together. And now we're in another iteration of white people and black people working together. And uh, there's one article that you bring up about white allyship, and there's all these different kind of nested conversations. And it seems to be, uh, it develops and then it gets snagged in certain places. Where do you think the conversation is right? now
1: that's funny you bring that up i actually revisited that article that i wrote i think i wrote that this summer because that's when george floyd was happening and like i said i, I did black lives matter so i have like firsthand like, like to be you know someone in the black liberation movement and working with white allies and things like that and i realized I just don't know the answer, but I realize there's a through line like repetitive thing that happens when a black person dies, a rally happens, a protest happens, and a lot of white people are really enthusiastic with coming out and protesting and wearing the shirts and being like Black Lives Matter. But time after time, whether it's Omar Rice, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, that goes away after literally two, three weeks. And it's like until the next black person dies is when we get sympathy. And then I started thinking, like, why is it that we have to die for people to come out and care? And I'm not, OK, so first off, I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. So let me just put that out there first. But I do see a lot from the left, a lot of virtual signaling of using Black Lives Matter to almost showcase that I'm a good white person. It's almost like Black Lives Matter is like the new safety pin for white people to be like, I'm not racist. It like gets more for their lives than our lives. And and this is something I really learned from T. Washington is forcing white people to like me, love me because I'm Black. In the same way, I'm hoping they wouldn't want to force me to love them because they're white. But I am into law and legislation and bills protecting me from someone's ignorance of thinking that Mm. I am inferior. But I'm not too interested in making white people like me. And that sounds very militant. I'm I'm not anti white. I have a lot of white friends. I date white men, like I love white people. I'm just saying I'm not in the kumbaya of this. I'm in the the law. Just make sure that I am protected from, from racism when it happens. But if someone hates me because I'm black, then I don't care. As long as that hate has can't not do anything to my life or cannot kill me. I don't care if you hate me. Um I just hope we do get to the point where we do judge each other by the content of our character. I mean that's so that seems so cliche now to say, but I really <laughs> hope we get to that. Um but yeah, I I, I think all the stuff that we're seeing, like Black Lives Matter being painted on streets, even people coming down to like, oh we're not gonna like Call master bedrooms, use master because that's right. Like, I don't care about that. I don't care about syrup being changed. I don't care about BLM in the streets. I don't care about black boxes on Instagram. I don't care about these businesses having Black Lives Matter suddenly in every window that I see walking around. I don't care. Like, I don't care. I don't care about your shirts. I don't care about your hats. Like, I want laws. (laughs) That's it. And that's that's why we're still doing this because laws have not changed.
0: Okay, you brought up something earlier about the black identity and uh, that kind of that groupthink. There's this excellent line in your article where you say that there's uh, there's a difference between everybody having the same idea or like a a million uh, one idea being replicated in a million minds as opposed to a million minds coming through critical thinking and converging on on a similar idea in the conversation around race and it might have to do with the ways in which activism kind of happens where everybody has to unify toward a common goal in order to get the voices heard that over time has accumulated this sense of identity uh that or the sense of of activism being a part of uh the black identity uh do you, did you see that and and where do you think that that came from in you or because you, you you talked about working your way out of that and starting to see different voices how do you think that that was constructed for you
1: are you saying that um like the civil rights movement in essence like the black struggle has become the identity of the black person is that what you mean well
0: i'm I'm wondering if that struggle or to what extent that struggle has informed the black identity, and to what extent has that kind of informed uh, that aspect that you were talking about about only choosing certain voices as opposed to others because everybody has to be on the same board in order to get something to 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 work out in the bigger society.
1: To become unified looks different for me. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to come unified and think the same, but come unified with diverse ideas and come up with something collective. I know that line that you're talking about a million minds attached to an idea and not is different than a million people critically agreeing with an idea. I mean, that's how I see like the left and the right. No offense to anyone on those sides, but I see like the right has one thought and everyone's attached to it and not critically like thinking is that something i actually believe in or is it because i subscribe to being a republican or democrat i have to think this way Hmm. in the same essence of being black do i really feel this way do i really feel like this is actually a step toward liberation for black people or for myself or do i sign up for this because i don't want to be seen as anti-black or a coon or uncle tom or against my community. And I want to seem as authentically black as I possibly can and that's what the point was for my essay was to shatter that illusion that because you're born black you are you don't have to prove it to anybody and you have every right to think differently. And that that would actually cultivate more of a change for us and for the world to see we don't think the same but the world in America th- thinks that because we, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously, uphold a couple of narratives that we feel represent us when each of us are a narrative. Hmm. That's that's the point. That mm-hmm. white people get that, that privilege, I hate using that word, so overused, but whatever, mm-hmm. um, to be an individual. White people have that privilege to be an individual but it's almost like i won't say all black people of course not but i would say a good amount of black people unknowingly take that privilege away from ourselves because we feel like in order to be a community we have to just think singularly and be unison and stay in a straight line and all of us well, it's like, like, no, they're only going to see one person where it's like all of us are diverse, all of us think a different way. And that mm-hmm. maybe the the answer to liberation is a piece of each of us. But since <laughs> we don't want to listen to everyone, or we don't want to listen to the conservatives or what have you, that we dismiss people like Thomas Sowell, who I think is one of the most brilliant people ever to live. But on the other side, I I think James Baldwin and Topsy Coates are also amazing. All of these voices are amazing, um, but they're not all one hundred percent correct, and they're not all one hundred percent incorrect because no one's perfect. So,
0: in one of your articles, you are you for. I guess you are you against colorblindness in a way. You are you for a form of uh, race realism, or perhaps I don't want to say essentialism. But where do you stand on that now? Going forward, do we abolish race? Do we uphold it?
1: Are you talking about our skin problem?
0: Yeah, that the piece? skin problem. Yeah. D- to yeah, what extent that, do we pay attention w- to that or let it go?
1: Some people thought I was advocating for colorblindness. Some people. I think got what I was trying to say, um, what I was trying to say is people are striving for this utopia of post-racial world. And that is what we're striving for. And I think that's impossible. We will always see color no matter what. But I was trying to break down that implicit biases attached to color is maybe something that we can work on. Hmm. Um, And I tried to do that with utilizing passing um, in the 50s, 60s, black people were passing more permanently to leave their black identity behind. And now we see, like with Rachel Dolezal and the other lady, Jessica, I think Crook, yeah. yeah, something like that, um, where white people are passing as black and people believe it. And these people aren't passing for a year and getting caught. I mean, these people are passing for a decade. Each woman, I think, was 10 years each they were being treated in the world as black women, as light-skinned black women, but black women nonetheless, and started developing in their own ways. I mean, this is what they said in their interviews, um, feeling they had the plight of a black person because that's how they've been treated through society. So what I was trying to show was that your biases on someone's color is literally on the color has nothing to really do with that person because someone like rachel who's biologically white would have been treated differently if she didn't pass for a black woman you know what i'm Mm -hmm. saying Mm -hmm. so it's like whatever racial discrimination she went through as a as passing as a light-skinned white woman was because that's how she was presenting herself and that's how her, her color came off because she was kind of tanning her skin too but if she lived white she would have had a different experience and it's only because of the color that Not, had nothing to do with who she was so that's why I was trying to get to to that and that. that's why I wanted to end with Dr. King breaking it all down and ending it with literally the content of our character is all that matters hmm. but it is hard because race is what we see first
0: okay do, so
1: that's what
0: I Do okay. So, how important is race uh, then, uh, and and how do we? <laughs> could you define it? What are we talking about? The the racial narrative in America, at least with regards to black and white. Can become very black and white, very essentialist it boils down to these narratives that are uh, kind of crashing into each other constantly and it seems like do can we ever get free of that? Um, it seems like one one thing that you've landed on is that I don't want to change people's thoughts. I want to take care of my character and be sure that I'm safe from violence or discrimination, uh, financial or some sort of quantifiable way. Uh, Do the a lot of the conversation right now, at least from Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kendi is about trying to get people to think the same way, trying to become anti-racist, trying to, you know, weasel into our brains and perform all these, you know, almost rites of passage where we prostrate ourselves and stuff. Do you what's your take on that kind of uh, path?
1: It's such a complex. I mean, it really is complicated. Race race can be simply defined as this having different skin color than someone else. But it's not that simple because we have culture. And yeah. race is like a has become like a biological thing where when you come out of your mother's womb, they mark you as black or white or whatever. Um doesn't mean all those experiences that you're going to have is attached to you, it just means you're black and good luck with in the world, or you're white and good luck with the world. But when society steps in, they start to treat you as what your color is, and the construction of what blackness is becomes who you are in a way. That is why I feel like there are some black people who are obviously born black and they say, "Well, I don't I've never felt this way. I've never felt racism in this way." And it might have been because of the society that was around them didn't give them the same experience as blackness as someone in Chicago or someone mm-hmm. in Gary, Indiana or Ferguson. But doesn't mean that person's less black just means maybe they didn't experience blackness in that extent but with um you mentioned what's his name kindy
0: yeah ibram Kendi. um
1: he was trying to make a separation between not racist and anti-racist i always try to look at someone's thoughts or opinions as them being as sincere as they can be or trying i think there's some flaws in anti-racism i think right now and actually made a a post about this on facebook that i fear that there's while we're dealing with racism or trying to be anti-racist there's something else breeding in the world this artificial anti-racism where i feel like some people are realizing that there's a bit of a monetary gift in keeping racism around, whether they're fighting it or not. And I feel like there's some people fighting against racism, regardless of color and the way they're fighting, that see racist, anti-racism, and I'm not talking about him in particular, I'm just talking about in general, that there's people that see anti-racist work as a nine-to-five job and that if racism doesn't exist they don't have a paycheck therefore they find ways to cultivate artificial racism to keep hmm. um, their banks full
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that is actually a lot of the stuff that I'm trying like this essay um, might be the first tip-top layer to beginning at that but I'm starting to really interrogate both sides of of people who call themselves anti-racist warriors. There are real people who are really wanting to end racism, and there's people who act like they do, but they don't. They're actually perpetuating it more.
0: The notions of implicit bias and systemic racism I find to be it's not the right word to call them dangerous, but it's very easy to... Over lean on the subconscious and the superstructural in order to uh, migrate the anti-racist discussion or migrate the civil rights discussion out of the realm of two people interacting out of the realm of I'm going to look at how I'm behaving and how the world is behaving to me and look at discrete instances of discrete problems with implicit bias with systemic uh, uh, bias or oppression it it, it becomes racism. Becomes very invisible. It becomes something about statistics or little tiny flashes of revulsion that some uh, some some test gave you. It can see. I can see how it could get really. Uh, those two things can be abused into turning it into this kind of uh, original sin or this almost super spiritual, you know, kind of uh, water that we swim through. And I see Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kindi I I'm sorry to say this. I, I can see that they're gaming uh, people by framing the conversation beyond uh, what a normal humans actually aware of and the way that they treat individuals. Um. um
1: yeah, I, I know what you're saying. So I guess in simpler terms, making something that really isn't there magnified? Um,
0: because both the implicit and the superstructural or the systemic are outside of the realm. They're, they're, they're both smaller and larger than a normal human consciousness. They're, they're something yeah. that, that we can't actually be aware of. In in both respects, unless you look statistically, or you come up with some sort of test that just gauges micro interactions, it's very hard to quantify those things. And therefore, it's very easy to blow them out of proportion or completely disregard them. It's very easy to to go either way to go to overstep in either direction. So how do how do you think that we attend to those to the superstructural and the implicit or the the superconscious and the and the subconscious in in the proper way?
1: I can speak for within I can't speak for my community, but what I've observed in my community is that Hmm. there are some that go by statistics and therefore they can restrain their mind from oh Overreacting to what they're seeing in outside reality. They're like someone, I don't know if it was Coleman Hughes, but someone said in 2019 or 2018, nine people, nine black people were, unarmed black people were killed by police. And therefore, when they were seeing all of these police killings happening, for them, they felt like this was media manipulating people to have this hysterical reaction that black people are dying constantly every single day. Um, Then there's some black people in my community that grow up in certain areas where they see this type of violence all the time, or they receive this type of violence all the time and do not trust those statistics. They feel like like those statistics in itself are racist and that those police officers, wherever they are, are not um, reporting these murders or these altercations um Mm -hmm. correctly so i can't say who's right or wrong i don't know if there's a right or wrong it it is about perception and the way that you are in the world for me it's hard because i grew up in indiana clems indiana i didn't grow up where there was a lot of police violence or anything like that um i did i did deal with racism you know i i was called in n-word i was you know, mm. all this stuff i'm more so i'm questioning why is it that black people are constantly on a loop like when we do die our death is constantly being pushed on a loop in media on facebook on social media all the time and that hmm. whatever um hysteria that's being created is i feel it's being created To manipulate our emotions and to make us feel paranoid and endangered all the time, whether it's actual truth or not, it kind of doesn't matter. And I tried to explain this to my friend. It's like, you know, every horror movie, you know, you see that that kid that's like, Mom, there is the boogeyman. He's in the closet and mom's like, there's no such thing as a boogeyman. Like, chill. You're like, no, there is. I saw him. You're like, no. And then the the kids terrorized every night by the boogeyman, but no one sees it. And then finally it destroys everyone. It's like people have that, that experience with racism and, and with what's going on when they see police violence, that it's a boogeyman to some people because the statistics don't show it's real, but to other people, they don't need statistics. They see them all the time and they're terrorized in their rooms all the time. Hmm. So it's like, it depends on where, where you are. Yeah. I don't I just can't discount um, the emotions and and what I've seen from my community even if I don't experience those um, perspectives necessarily I, I do believe them. like I believe my friends that are from Chicago or from Gary who say they are constantly bullied or brutalized by the police when they've done nothing wrong and then that makes them uncomfortable around police that makes them uncomfortable or in fear of their life when they do get stopped. I mean, there needs to be consideration on why Black people, even if the statistics show one of us die a year, Mm -hmm. why is it though there is this through line of fear of the police? It's nothing that we like or we want. Mm -hmm. I think for me, Seeking out other Black voices and and really looking at statistics and facts, it has mentally has helped me kind of gain control of my emotions. I will not allow whatever the powers that be to make me feel like I can't walk the streets of America. If that yeah. makes sense, like I'm not going to be that one. So it, it's hard. I don't even know if I answered your question, but it's, <laughs> no, you... it's a hard yeah. thing. So the, I was talking about the utopia of a post-racial world. Um, and Coleman Hughes said this, and I think it's very important and actually true. People see racism as something to end, but racism to me will never end. And he compared it to murder. He's like, murder is wrong. Murder shouldn't happen, but murder will happen. But there's laws against murdering people. And that's how I see racism. Racism should not happen. It's wrong, but it it will happen. And we just need laws against it. And you can't mandate people to not be ignorant and and be a bigot in all of these arenas, like not just black and white in every way. but i think the less power we give those people like if we just have laws against like certain things happening and we just don't give those people power like before i, I was telling my um couple of my friends that before in black lives matter if someone were to call me the n word it would be an issue like a big issue like i would re i would react instantly i think now if someone called me the n word I think I could actually smile at that person hmm. and not because the power happens when I give it power. Like they're saying that to get a reaction on me. They're not just saying it it's just to be like, Hey, like they want, they want the power. They want me to feel inferior. And by me projecting anger and hate on them, even justified. So if someone did justified, but that gives them what they want. Hmm. But if I look at you, I'm like, you're, that word does nothing. It has no power. Hmm. I'm an American. Get used to it. Bye. <laughs> like that's, that's. I think that's how I would react.
0: What sparked your interest in becoming a founder of a Black Lives Matter chapter?
1: During college, I did organize some die-ins for Eric Garner. I, I wasn't a part of an organization, but I organized like a die-in and like a protest for Mike Brown and stuff like that. But then when I saw Alton Sterling die, like footage of it, not CNN, not Fox, like an actual like raw footage that someone put on YouTube, it was unbelievable to see that he was literally on the ground. The police were on him, but the police were doing this odd, like audio alibi, knowing that there might not be footage, but if they act like there's a commotion, like get on the ground, get on the ground, oh, here's a gun, oh and then they shot like I saw it he wasn't moving they shot him and i was like that's it and then the next day and even 24 hours later flan Castile castillo was shot and i was like i had a lot of rage in me i i was i think it was 26 or 27 i had a lot of rage a lot and i knew i needed to get it out in a positive way so i went to city hall i protested with like 15 to 20 friends and then after that I was like I'm sick of protesting. Like I'm sick of the fact that I can recycle this this poster for someone else that's mm-hmm. gonna die. I'm like I'm I'm really kind of over it. And so I was talking to my friends like we should start something clinics. I don't know what to call it, but and Black Lives Matter was a thing already for 3 years. I didn't even think about Black Lives Matter. I was just like what should we call this? So I actually looked at their objectives at the time and it was pretty sh- you know, straight on, they had, like, at that time, six objectives, um, all centered on anti-police brutality, and, you know, um, it wasn't really what I see now, but it mm. was very clear, and I felt like, okay, this is something I can get behind. I'm going to have to reshape it for my community, because we're not, like, these other communities that's dealing with, like, these, these um, issues head-on. But I'm like, we can start by just holding events and sessions on talking about this, because it's not talked about in my community. Like, we think that racism... We, if we hear racism, we're like, what's how do you spell that? Like, no one even knows, like, what that is. That's why it started. It didn't start because I'm like, I want to start an organization. It was just, like, an organic thing.
0: How did that work out, then, those conversations? Did uh, Was there... Participation in all the different uh, races and uh, demographics?
1: I would say 90% of our people were white. And we ended up having a pretty good following. I was shocked. I was like, Hmm. you know, I was like, this isn't going to last more than six months because my community was just really conservative and really, and, and nothing gets Republicans. I have Republican friends, really Republican. And I was just like, I don't think this is going to last. Something's going to happen to where someone is going to try something. But luckily for me, I was always a fan of Dr. King. Um, I I learned about him. My dad, he grew up in Jim Crow. So I've learned about Dr. King all my life. And I really went back to like the drawing board of how he organized stuff. And I'm like, I need to do it the way he did it because he did it well. Like... So I I kind of modeled not try I didn't try to be my last name is King, so whatever, but I wasn't trying to be the next Martin Luther King. I was just taking archival evidence of this is how something works and what better way to do it in a town that Hmm. mirrors some of what he had to do with. So and it and it did work and a lot of people who actually would come to our events were like i was coming to actually speak to you on how disgusting i thought black lives matter was i was actually going to write the paper about how bad this event was and they would come up with tears like i can't believe that i've been ignorant or or i can't believe i didn't understand the side of the issue because for me, I wasn't, I wasn't saying it in a way where I was like, white people, you're racist. And I wasn't doing that. Like, for me, that's just not going to work for me. I was just one-on-one explaining my experience as someone that grew up in this town and then bringing in what was happening nationally, like Charlottesville was happening and stuff like that, and disarming people with, listen, let's just, let's just talk. And people were open. People were talking. People were inviting their friends. Um, hmm. And I think it went as perfect as it could have. And I'm really happy that I did it. Hmm.
0: So, yeah. Does was your father or your ancestors involved in the civil rights uh, movement directly? Is that part of kind of your your heritage?
1: Um, I don't think my dad was like a part of the civil rights movement, but he did grow up in Alabama, Birmingham, and he would see the marches. He did tell me once that he walked home with um, Martin Luther King's little brother. I I thought that's cool. I'm like, that's enough for me. I'm going to tell everyone. Um, But no, my, like he, he did his own type of stuff, but he never was a part of like, you know, snick with John Lewis or anything. No, no, I can't remember. I don't know if anyone was, Um, but we were always, he would tell us relay stories about him growing up in the South and telling us about certain circumstances that he went through. And it was almost not told to us. It wasn't told to us in a way that, okay, this is why you should fear white people. Or this is why you should fear being... It was more like how you would tell your kids just stories of how you, you are brought up. And I think he did that to subconsciously make us aware that if this happens to you, you, kind of get us prepared if it happened to us.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: But never made us hate, fear white people, ever. If anything, he preached... Well, he is a preacher, but if anything, oh. he he preached... Um not to judge people and also that we can do anything we want as long as we work hard so i was always brought up knowing about racism but not to fear it if that makes sense Mm -hmm. but that's just kind of how the world is
0: yeah there's a strain of thought um and i'm coming from the perspective of understanding that in trying to conceive of race from a white perspective, there's a high likelihood of being... Inaccurate in how we picture that. We're presented with stories, uh, we're presented with narratives, with movies, uh, with uh, concepts. Uh, you know, implicit bias, structural racism, ancestral trauma. Uh, there's there's this huge package that that we're we're presented with, and there's a lot to go through and you know to suss out, and then to try to figure out. Well, what does that have to do with me? And what does that have to do with the actual people right now that I'm that I'm dealing with? So I'm putting that out there just to kind of say I'm, I am I don't know everything uh, and I don't pretend to but do you feel that you have inherited a burden uh, of racism in, in America do you feel like you've inherited a, the burden of slavery of Jim Crow is that something that you've had to process and, and how does that uh, figure into the story of who you are
1: um okay so I don't think I I think, honestly, the way I was able to do—and um, I'll just start with, like, Black Lives Matter up until this point with even just going through grad school and, like, dealing with certain things that are really challenging in my life that might not even have to do with race. I actually look at my being a descendant from slavery as something, like, I, there is no excuse for me. Like, I— I don't look at it as, man, my ancestors were slaves. I look at it like my ancestors were slaves and look at where I am. And I'll do it every day, but I try like certain things. I was in a class with ta Coats, and I was like, wow, whatever. Like if I can let like an ancestor, like be with me and fill this moment is awesome. Also like an ancestor being present in a moment when the first Black president was elected in 2008, Barack. I find what I do as a journalist in me writing and reading as a defiance against what my ancestors had to go through. And that was a big thing. And I mentioned an essay that even if Black people disagree or we have diverse thought, the fact that we are thinking is awesome. And the fact that we have this privilege so to speak that our ancestors didn't have because they would have died is something we should not take for granted that is why i read as much as i can and write and i find it paying homage to civil rights um, activists and my ancestors i find both nothing of a burden i find it Hmm. a privilege to Hmm. know that we have gone from this point 400 years ago to this point. I'm not one of those people that are like, we haven't progressed to say that we haven't progressed. You're basically saying that you're still in shackles like your ancestor. I'm pretty sure they'd rather be right here. So no, I don't find it a burden, but I know what you mean by like a burden, maybe as carrying the torch of the black struggle. I again, don't find that a burden I use. I utilize my, my writing and my essays to carry that torch i don't i'm not the same type of black i am a black activist and i'm also a critical thought activist two things (laughs) i want people to think for themselves but i also am a black activist in a way where i am for my people but i will i'm also going to say things that will piss off my community my community and i know this essay was one of those things i know it and I know other essays I will write will piss off my community, but I do it with tough love in the same way I did that. I am not your hashtag with the white, with white allyship. It's not to say I don't want white people's help or I don't want community with white people. That's not it. I'm interrogating your intent. That is what I'm doing. And that you don't get a jump in and out of activism or allyship. If that's what you want to be. And also with my community, I interrogate certain stuff. Like, do we really mean this? Or are we all going along with this because this person has been perched up as like the savior? Like we should actually be criticizing this person or critiquing this person, making sure like they are actually telling the truth. Some might see me as a black antagonist. I would say I'm a black, you know, activist, positive in all ways. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's how I see myself in activism.
0: How do you see, um, so the George Floyd protests have been kind of just going on and on and there's always going to be something right around the corner where there's a altercation uh, whether justified or unjustified egregious or misunderstood or a court decision comes through and it just seems like we're going through this process of one protest after another protest after another protest after another protest and looking at it and just you can selectively find the footage to see that things are going off the rails if you look at it the right way what do you see is happening uh, right now with the protests that continue to go on the riot rioting and where do you think that that's going to you know leave us in the next few months or in the next coming time like where do you think this is going and are you worried about that
1: Um, so, so I have to say, okay, a couple of things. So I know that I think the New York times was the one that came out with the statistic. 93% of protests have been peaceful. Obviously 7% has not though. I think that 7% has done a lot of damage to the black lives matter movement. Um, the thing people need to understand is that black lives matter is a national organization and then any cities there are different pockets of chapters and sometimes they don't all have the same objective and they all and they all don't come together and say we're going to go and protest like one city does something one um and one might be more radical than the next for me we did protests in columbus though I purposely did not do a protest every single time something happened because it would be inauthentic to my city. It it just wouldn't make sense. Like, I'm not going to just do a protest to be like, see, we're doing something too. No. White people are asking me, like, why aren't we protesting more? And I'm like, I wonder if people ask Dr. King, like, why don't you put yourself out there for us to do something? Like, that's kind of how it came off. And I'm like, it... Sometimes you don't you you can go, and what I would do is I would go to Indianapolis or Gary and support the protests happening there because I know like they actually are dealing with police brutality like more on the ground and in my city it wasn't like that so I would go and tell my uh, members let's let's help them but we don't need to do it here we will not need a thousand protests everywhere we need to help the ones that are really dealing with it but. I know what you're talking about. I think in Washington, in Portland, there are some Black Lives Matter people making white people hold their fist up and saying, if you don't say Black Lives Matter and hold your fist up, you're a white supremacist, or knocking over people's food and whatever. Din- like, you know what I mean? Like, outside diners. Having their food and they were like going down and whatever, destroying stuff. Again, that was the 7%. That wasn't useful. For me, I feel like, for I, on my page, and I haven't been over a BLM in two years or three years, but on my page, I denounced them and I said, this is disparaging against the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm not for that. I'm not for artificial forcing where I'm going to tell a white person put your fist up right now and say I matter any white supremacist could do that if they really want to finish their burger like it's not hard to be like you matter okay bye like it's not (laughs) hard that doesn't change nothing like Mm -hmm. does that really when you go home you're safer because that one white person did what you said I I'm not for that um I think there's always a time and a place for protests. I am starting to wonder if protests are becoming antiquated and there's a different way to do things now because we do have more access. And the reason why Dr. King, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton, all of these people, John Lewis did protest is because they didn't have access and their did their voice didn't literally could not be heard in certain rooms or with people. And they had to go to the streets and demonstrate or else will stay, be silenced. Now we can do that, but it almost doesn't mean the same thing because it's more of why aren't you protesting? And yeah. once society is like behind you, it's almost like, what's the point of doing this? Dr. King and, and the civil rights movement, they were literally risking their lives. And not only that, like the white people that were helping them were risking their their lives, their livelihoods, their jobs. Everyone was risking stuff. Like it was no joke. It was not a drill. It was real. And now, you almost could get a job. Like if people see you out there, like, oh, you're really, you're really for the people. You want to work here. So it's like, hmm. I'm like, there has to be something we're missing. And for me, I I personally don't. Like I cover protests as a journalist, but as like someone protesting. I haven't done that in a while because it took a mental toll on me with with anger, with with stuff that I was like, this is not conducive to my health. And for me I can I can get out my words in better ways than, than doing this to myself. We have so much more access now that we need to be filling up those rooms so to speak figuratively and if the overspill is in the streets fine but as long as we're in those rooms talking directly to the people we're trying to get the attention of when we're in the street we not all of us I'm not saying all of us have access I'm saying like we have more access to get to those like not everyone was Dr King to talk to the president but Dr King when he went in there was representing a lo- was representing the black community in the same way, now we have a lot of Black people that can do that in a lot of different cities, states, and going to, the, to see the president. Though, seeing this president, some people are like, I don't know. We've seen how that's worked with some Black people <laughs> who are going to see him. It doesn't bode well with community. Oh, but Oh, really? But, uh, yeah, I've, I've heard. With, like, Kanye and, like, whoever else, Steve Harvey and... Hmm. It's like a taboo. Like I 100% get why people would be mad at like Kanye West or like Steve Harvey or whoever talking to Donald Trump because they feel like you're co-signing, like you're 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 betraying a race. But for them, they're like, no, I'm trying to talk to this person about what we're dealing with. So it's like you, you can't win or lose, um, mm-hmm. but.
0: Or you do both very. Or you do <laughs>
1: both <laughs> and just, just screw it.
0: Hmm. What's the idea that you're wrestling with now, or that you th- you're going to be writing, or you are currently writing now? What, what's the next thing for you?
1: One, I'm I'm relaunching <laughs> my my podcast on YouTube. Um, it's called American Shade, and that'll be happening next uh, month. I had this podcast for two years when I was doing, when I was at NYU, I was on the WNYU thing. Um, and I was talking about racial issues, social issues, but I wasn't talking and I put on the podcast, like obviously I'm black and I'm a woman, but I mean, I'm going to invite other guests on that might have opposing ideas than me. Also, I'm going to look at these issues that we're dealing with on a national level at as objectively as I can. Hmm. Um, as James Baldwin as I can if you will, because I feel like he was pretty like, let's get through the rift. Like, I know there's a black side, white. Let's go to the gray. What's happening? And that's what I tried to do. So I'm going to relaunch that on YouTube. So that's one thing. Another piece I'm working on that I've been working on forever, because I just, it's hard. It's like not hard, but I'm like, if these pieces didn't piss someone off, this one will. But, um... And I, at this point, I don't care. Like I'm 30. I don't really care, but it's called the danger. I don't know what it's called, but I'm going to talk about the, um, the danger of identity politics and talk about my, how I've evolved to where I've I'm thinking now versus a couple years ago or three years ago to how, if it didn't fit this this black line, it was it was not right. If it didn't fit this, no, fight. Hmm. If you sound like this person, if you sound like you know, like um, when I was watching the the congressional hearing with Tonasi Coates and Coleman Hughes, and I was like, well, he's not for reparations. He's a coon, hmm. Coleman. Then after watching, like it was funny. I think watching that really clicked on. Wow, I have changed the way I thought because. When I watched that, I was like, how could I have thought that about him? I was like, I still think Ta-Nehisi's correct, but I still... but now I see Coleman's argument. And not only did he have courage to say it at that age, I think it was like 22, 23. What he was saying was not wrong. It might make Black people feel um, upset or interrogated or challenged um but how what his perspective was wasn't just an emotional response it was like he had like statistics on why we shouldn't and it was more so it's like i don't think we deserve it it wasn't that it was like i think this would actually harm us if we get it and tanasi was like no we're owed this because of we were harmed both i feel like we're right and that is inspired me to kind of harken back to du bois and booker t washington and i was kind of seeing that those two sides again and then i'm like oh like black liberal liberalism or radicalism the mm-hmm. black conservative like both are right why is there a binary one why is there a binary anyway that's one and two why is it that one side, if you don't, if you're not on that side, you are not only not right, but you're not black, you're not part of the community. Like I'm like, I'm not, I'm not for that. And I was like that. I I was. But now that I realize how important hmm. it is for diverse opinions to come to the table, and that not only is it boring to have a conversation with someone that thinks the same as you, there's no quality dialogue that happens. It's like when you have a conversation with someone, you're consenting to being uncomfortable and being with intention and being offended because not everyone's going to think like you. And wouldn't that suck if we all thought the same anyway? Like how boring would that be? I don't want, no. Hmm. So I, that's, that's kind of how I take things now and things I kind of roll off my back because they're not attached to like what they're saying doesn't hurt me because my ideas are not did not come through a vetting of my emotions it came through logic but before it was like I think this way because of me and my experience and if someone challenges it you're challenging who I am now if someone challenges me it's like you're just challenging what I'm trying to come up with and I might be wrong Cause I'm not God. So I could be wrong. Maybe let's talk about it. Let's see. So that's how I, I, how I am now. Um, and it was just feel free to be Hmm. honest. I feel, I feel way more free to one. Say what I want. And, and and I consider so many more, um, different point of views like, I'm so open to just hearing everyone because I don't feel attacked by anyone. I'm just like, okay, you're someone else that thinks differently. Cool. Let's well, we can't have coffee, but let's Zoom. And my friends now, I think before I would definitely be like, we would think singularly, but now I think I know that they love, like we get into debates like three or four hours and I'll be challenging them, white or black, and I'll be challenging them on stuff even if I kind of agree with them, I still challenge them because I want to see is this something you believe? Or are you just saying this because you're regurgitating something you heard that you think you should believe because you're this is your part of your identity. Like everything I say is what I believe. What I write in print, I don't regret because it one, it took a long time for me to write it and it took a long time for me to decide is this what I want out there and when I send it to editor I know it could be critiqued but I'm ready to fight for what I said because that's what I meant yeah so I feel good
0: <laughs> <laughs> you said that it was watching it was rewatching the congressional hearing uh, on reparations with uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and uh, Coleman Hughes that seeing that again was when you're like oh I've changed but what do you think changed you
1: what- oh there was a there was a lot of different things I think that was kind of like
0: yeah
1: and it was so stark because I just remember how I reacted to this very thing not too long ago yeah and then almost like, how could I have, like, really dumbfounded. Like, I really was kind of ignorant. Not to say other people, I mean, people can say what they want about that hearing. For me, how I reacted was a little juvenile. And it just was like, you didn't even hear him. The fact that he was on the opposite side of someone that you admire was enough.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He was on that, it was in that house of of conservatism and that binary and therefore whatever he said okay. was
0: wrong. what was it that that got you to open up and and i asked that to you know was it a book was it a novel was it an experience oh was it grad gosh. school like was there this one is thing
1: be, I, I mean i don't care at this point but this is a controversial very controversial of how i kinda it was like this um just a, a breaking, like, hmm. and this person did it. I mean, it wasn't this person, but it was listening to this person and then finding out who this person was after. I heard this person. Let's see. Who was it? Oh, I
0: have him here. I don't know if you see that.
1: Jordan oh, no. Peter. <laughs> Okay. So, and, and and just to show, I have ta Coates was with Jordan. I okay. love both. Hmm. I And you can, they both can exist. I understand Jordan Peterson, very controversial. And it's funny because I was hearing his stuff on YouTube. I just, I don't even know how I came up. I was listening to a panel discussion that he was on and I just thought what he was saying, I'm like, oh, he's he has some stuff to say. So I started listening to him and then I'm like, wow, like he's really challenging how I critically think and really like making me reconsider some stuff. And then I heard about the controversy and I'm like, what? So I was like, before I judge and and mark him off as all these things that people say, I looked at stuff that he's read, I looked at articles, I looked at contrasting to what he has refuted in those articles i looked at the whole two hour like hearing that he had over the c16 bill i believe it was in canada to not be legislated to say things that he does not want to say that does not coincide with his life and wouldn't that be what any american wants like i am yeah. like i understand there is eggshells around that discussion with the trans community and how they feel what they deal with is very real and should and definitely needs to be taken more seriously in this society um but for him to call someone like that transphobic Hmm. is to dilute what the meaning actually is to people that are transphobic because if you're going to call him transphobic then anyone walking down the street would be all he's saying is if I have a conversation with my students or whoever in my life about their pronouns, we'll have that. That's our business. But for someone to say, you better do this. It's almost like he's like, I'm not going to say, like call you those things because you're making me mm-hmm. in the same way as telling someone you better love me because I'm this color. Like, yeah. no. And I, I mean, I, I have a lot of, of friends that are non-binary um, that are transgendered, male or female. And of course, I mean, I call them by their pronouns. I, I'm i like, I'm your friend. I call you by pronouns. I have no problem. It's an organic thing. They would never meet it. The same way I would never make them say, before you come to my house, you have to, before you walk in, you have to say Black Lives Matter. Or before you come in, you have to say a prayer to God if they're an atheist. Like, I would never mm-hmm. do that to them. Like, if you're atheist, you're atheist. I am not, but I'm not going to say, say a prayer and I got to throw holy water on you before I can hang out with you. Like, I'm not going to do that. And they would never weaponize stuff like that on me. And I think that's what he's saying. Like once we allow legislation against this, it's, it's not them. It's the slippery slope of other things that could happen when that happens. Mm -hmm. Free speech is the most important thing Americans have. Some might say the second amendment, right? I think the first amendment, right? Is the most important thing. Um, And I I like Jordan Peterson. I'm black. And I like (laughs) James Baldwin and Thomas. Guys, it can happen. I promise.
0: Again, I have to say that the labor that you've invested into what used to be called a page now, I guess it's still called a page, a web page, wherever your words land I can tell that you put a lot of work into them and it's studious on a sentence level they're excellently constructed and they're very okay. informative and and I can feel that you're actually working through things and the articles that you sent me which I'll link in the description really do show a process of you developing as a person and as a writer and it's really refreshing to be uh, to to watch that you know you don't see uh somebody just you know Perfectly uh, articulating everything they've always believed. It, it, you're, you're watching somebody unfold, and it's always a, a, a oh, treat thank you. to see that.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's. I, I look back and I'm like, I I wrote those things because I believed it, but I've just seen like this evolution that I'm getting somewhere, um, and hopefully, this next article is that next push. Um, so. My latest one was really that thrust off of out of the nest. I mean I was kinda out, but I was kinda like just go. And now I'm kinda like, okay, this next one is is where I'm really going to shake things yeah. up. So.
0: Excellent. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via PayPal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.